0: Welcome to Talking Infrastructure, the fortnightly podcast brought to you by global infrastructure company Acom. In this series, we'll be discussing the hot topics, key projects, and innovations that are helping to solve some of the world's most complex infrastructure challenges. Hello and welcome to Acom's Talking Infrastructure Podcast. My name is James Banks, and I'm head of external relations in Europe, the Middle East, and Africa for ACOM. The coronavirus pandemic has left businesses, stock markets and the global economy in a state of shock. Lockdowns have led to factories slowing or halting production, jobs have been lost, furloughed or put at risk and governments are increasing borrowing to cover the costs. But things will improve. The lockdowns will lift and we will recover. But what part should infrastructure play in that recovery? And how can investment in our infrastructure accelerate this? To discuss this subject, I'm joined by Mark Thurston, Chief Executive of High Speed Two, Dean Spawn, Director of Highways England's Regional Investment Programme for the South, Nick King, Group Director of Network Services and Network Rail, and Mark Southwell, Managing Director of Civil Infrastructure for the UK and Ireland at ACOM. Welcome, everybody. Thank you. Welcome, James. Firstly, to kick things off, Mark Southwell, uh, if I can come to you, as you are on the home team, why is infrastructure
1: so important for economies? So I think, James, we, we all know from historical uh, situations that governments of the past have used infrastructure investment as, as a way of stimulus uh, to the economy. The UK government have, have done that over the years. And, and it, it, the same goes across the world. And looking at our, our colleagues in America, they have demonstrated after the 2008 uh, recession, they earmarked over 14 percent of the, the budget for infrastructure projects. And and that was basically driven by the fact that they saw a correlation between infrastructure investment and the economy. And they saw uh, $100 billion equating to a million jobs. So it's interesting with the current situation, uh, we're already seeing, as you referred to in the introduction, with a number of people being furloughed and, and people being made redundant. And we're already hearing of what could be the unemployment figures uh, forecast in the next six to 12 months. So if there's ever a time for uh, infrastructure investment, it, it is now to get the economy back up and running, to get people working again, to get that money cycling around the economy. It's so important. Again, you know, taking some historical data from from America, but you can get it in the UK as well. It's been known that the investment of infrastructure, $1, gets a return of uh, $3.54. So it it has that experience. It's had that immediate impact to the economies, which in this scenario that we're now facing is what we really need. We need that input to the economy to get it going again. And it's really vital. And I think from a positive point of view you know let's be very clear the government have been investing in infrastructure for a long time now and never so more than you you've, we see with highways england they have over 25 billion for investment in the next 5 years network rail is 47 billion in for its uh, control period and we've just had the uh, notice to proceed for hs2 on its phase 1 which is significant investment so I think it's a really great opportunity for the UK economy, but also the infrastructure, UK infrastructure business, because the opportunities are there. And with what's happened to us in the last couple of months or a month or so, there's never been a better time for the government to really push hard on on infrastructure investment to really get that stimulus to the economy back again. So, you know, history's told us it's the right thing to do. And I think with where we're positioned at the time, it's a case now we just need to push hard on on those opportunities. And I know you're gonna ask about shovel ready later, but that's really the opportunity that this industry has at the moment. So for me, the history tells us this, and I think the future will tell us. And when we look back that this was a, a really key period for the infrastructure industry and how it's hopefully set up the UK going forward. So that's my my views on how infrastructure and investment can help with our economy. Thanks, Mark. Um, Dean, coming to you next, uh,
0: it's important to remember that it's it's not just about large infrastructure projects. I mean, they are important, surely because they unlock a a pipeline for smaller regional projects and schemes. Is that
2: right? Absolutely, James. I think uh, Mark touched on um a number of really impressive in, uh, metrics around the, the upcoming investment over the next five years or so in Highways England, um, Network Rail, and High Speed 2. Uh, and that's great. You know, there's some big numbers, 25 billion, 47 billion. But that, that on its own is, isn't the end of the story. And, and Mark also touched on benefit-cost ratios. And at Highways England, we aim for a, a three-to-one benefit-to-cost ratio. So when you when you look at you know the investment that you're making, and 25 billion over five years, you know, translates into 75 billion. But it's also such a massive catalyst for the rest of uh, regional investment. It absolutely enables uh, housing growth, and we all know that we we that the country needs to catapult forward its house building program because we've got we've got a real shortage, and we need to make make housing affordable. We know that people and businesses need. Be able to be mobile and need to be connected across the country, port to port, and hubs. So, you know, infrastructure on its own is great, but it enables so much more. And, and the spin offs from infrastructure in terms of connecting the businesses, enabling businesses to grow, are again worldwide evident. You know, I was, I was personally involved in a 20 billion pound investment uh, scheme in Sydney. And if you look where the railway was built, it was built into some real agricultural land. Uh, that was some 10 years ago. If you go there now, there's actually the um, semblance of a city growing in that area, supporting business enterprise areas and massive housing development. So I think you know, similar to Mark's comments, you know, history shows us that infrastructure is a massive enabler um, for regional development, and without it, there's a, there can be a real constraint on what how those regions can develop out.
0: Can Mark Thurston, just. Coming to you off, off the point of, of planning our infrastructure for the future, we, we, we heard then from Dean saying that the importance of unlocking it and the other schemes that can follow on around rail hubs, et cetera. But are we expecting people's behaviours to change? How do you think that's going to affect our infrastructure in the, in the future in a, in a post-coronavirus world?
3: I have no crystal ball, James, but it's a great question. And I, it's a question I've been asked only this week, actually, in the context of HS2 and the need for you know, high-speed intercity rail system that becomes the backbone of our rail network. It will, you know, make a significant contribution to the country's drive for a carbon-zero economy. It will provide much-needed capacity, on, the, particularly on the West Coast main line uh, and on our general high-speed, uh, you know, the intercity systems. And, of course, it connects those major cities, particularly in the Midlands and the North. So it's all part of that levelling-up agenda, which has already been touched on. And the question I've been asked is, well, you know, is that still necessary? Will HS2 still uh, have its place? And, you know, we absolutely believe that the case is there. I mean, clearly technology has probably surprised us all in the way we're able to work remotely as we have now for four weeks or so, most of us who can do so. But, of course, you know, the, the economy is really, really struggling, as you said in your opening remarks. And lots of parts of the economy need to get back to work, need to travel. And, you know, we'd see HS2 and actually the infrastructure in transport, the investment in transport infrastructure to be an important part of that. So it will be, you know, I think... Issues around sort of distancing and public health, I think we're going to have to come to terms with for some time. You know, you have seen in the press the weekend EasyJet talking about sort of selling every other seat on aeroplanes, which no doubt will affect the price. I guess you'll have the same issue on trains and buses. We've seen obviously some issues, particularly around transport in London, has been quite acute because it's so dense. Um, so I think it's, you know, too early to say, I'm sure the economy will recover, as you said, exactly how we respond and how we behave Um, in a temporary or permanent way only time will tell but i think for a range of reasons that continued investment in infrastructure not just to create that sort of economic engine that you and mark uh, and dean talked about but actually uh, people will want to travel but we've got to find a way of doing that that protects the public health concerns that will inevitably flow for some time and be sort of strong in the memory of the country uh, post this event. So it'd be interesting to see how that plays out. But I think the other thing around the sort of technology that, that we're all using now to find a way of working more effectively is it will create for businesses choice um, and people can make decisions around how they work and travel. And that'll, again, I think to be something that we'll have to sort of come to terms with when we make decisions around investment and infrastructure.
0: Nick, from a network rail perspective, what are what are you seeing and what are the lessons that you're learning as the pandemic continues and as the lockdown continues? Are what Mark was saying there around HS2, are those, are those things that you're planning and you're seeing right now?
4: I think I'd start really around building on Mark's point about new ways of working. And if we look at what this has done to those people that are able to work from home, we've gone from having anything between one and 2,000 people remotely working to the peak of 20,000 last week. But on the flip side, more than 50 percent of our, our teams still have to come to work because they are frontline workers doing critical roles, signal control, maintenance, etc. cetera. And therefore, we've had to learn how to adapt in those two different environments very quickly. And the other piece that's really clear to us is this really reemphasizes that a railway actually is a total system. And therefore, as network rail, you can't just fix your own issues. You've actually got to work collaboratively with all of the other stakeholders that make up delivering a complete railway to our passengers and freight users. So that's the train operators, it's the freight operators, it's all the different governments, both devolved, um, et cetera. And, and that's created an absolute need for us to collaborate because the challenges that we've got then materialise in the above rail train operator world and vice versa. So we've had to learn how to be really fast and sharp in our decision making. We've had to work out how to protect staff with social distancing and all of those sort of factors. So I think it's been very interesting on, on that. And to see how that will develop into the future as people do start to come back to work and restrictions are lifted, as Mark mentioned, what will be the number of people travelling to work? Many organisations have now learned how to work from home because they've had to. And all those new technology platforms are working in many ways very effectively. So that, that's a small contribution, James.
0: Yeah, I mean, gosh, I mean, it's difficult. I know we we're talking about things that we don't know exactly know how it's all going to pan out. But... I think it was really interesting you talk about the, the collaborative approach and also the decision-making. Looking outside of what we're talking about really today, but what we've seen at the delivery of NHS Nightingale hospitals and the way that organisations have really worked together to deliver things in a very short time, do you think there are, there are lessons to be learned from that on how industry and how the way industry works with government should be taken going forward? Dean, what are your thoughts on that?
2: Yeah, it's, it's very interesting seeing how how quickly those things can get built out when there's a need to do it and, and, and a real imperative. And, you know, I, I suppose there's lots of people looking at that and certainly uh, the general public looking at that saying, well, how come it does take us so long to build these large infrastructure schemes when um, if the world's there, things can be done? And I think it's about, you know, starting off by creating the value statement, you know, so what was the value statement in in, in that first nightingales? But what It was speed, wasn't it? that thing needs to be up and running quickly. So everything else became a secondary issue. So I'm sure there weren't long and protracted uh, conversations about forms of contract and uh, commercial terms. Um, so really, I, I think, you know, if you can create a value statement and you can get everybody aligned to that value statement of a particular thing in a moment of absolute need, then that, that's a driving force behind trying to Push forward any scheme, I, I suppose, or any sort of investment. That's not to say that in the future, when we when we come out of this current situation, that everyone's going to um, forget about the commercial terms, etc. I'm sure that's not not going to be the case, because we're all investing government money at the end of the day. But for me, it's very much creating a value
1: statement. What's important, and how do you get everybody? Um, to be aligned to that that common aim. Just on that, James and and Dean, I'm sure there will be, but there's a great opportunity to look at what's happened with Nightingale and the other hospitals. What can we do to streamline? Because... We've all worked in this industry for a long time and we've all probably come across the processes that sometimes, let's be honest, do hinder. And it's got to be a great opportunity to really uh, reflect and take from what's been a, a very difficult period of time for this country and all the people working here and take some positives from it. So I, I, I hope that we do that. That would be one of my uh, one of my hopes that come out of this, that we do take some of the learning.
0: Mark, from an HS2 perspective, what are your thoughts on the, on the, how quickly things have been delivered?
3: Well, I think what it's tested, isn't it, is that sort of interaction between the public and the private sector. And I'm sure when all this plays out in the fullness of time, there'll be some fantastic examples of where that has uh, made a significant difference. And to Dean's point, you know, at pace, at speed. Uh, but equally, it's probably exposed some cracks in that interface between the public and private sector. So I thought it was an interesting and you know conversation we're having about HS2, at HS2 about what we do as we come through this and out the other side. And rather than talk about going back, talk about going forward and seeing this as a transition to a new version of HS2, and we sort of renew ourselves. It's called the coverage in the press the weekend, and it was interesting. I think it was the, some of the, the chief executive of the Royal College of Practitioners made the point that you've seen sort of the take-up of technology in the health service more in the last two to three weeks than you have in the last 20 years. Now, you know, it's slightly anecdotal, but I think... This idea of you don't waste a good crisis and these situations do force you to think about actually what is a smart way of working. And at times, particularly in that public private interface, we do get ourselves often wrapped up in lots of stuff that takes a long time for reasons we understand. But I think as we come out the other side of this, I'd like to think that we will be much smarter, particularly in the public sector, using the private sector and getting them sort of engaged quicker because in organizations like mine and like How is england and network rail one of the sort of pushbacks we often get from contractors and supplies is it's very expensive and it takes a long time to sort of get on board and you know we've got frameworks and various other things but you know i think this crisis and this and the sort of reaction from sort of politicians through the civil service and out into sort of arm's length bodies and agencies into private sector has shone a light on, you know, the sort of layers and interaction, which, uh, as I say, I'm sure in the fullness of time, there'll be some good stuff to come from. Got
0: on your point there about in- engaging with people there, Mark, do we think that it might be, we are talking about investing in infrastructure here, clearly, but do you think there might be a, an issue here communicating the benefits to people around investing in infrastructure you know, people clearly at the moment want to see money going into the NHS. They want to see money going into the resilience in case we get second waves or, or a similar pandemic. Are we going to struggle with getting people on side and saying, this is what we should be doing? Let's build and let's invest in infrastructure to get our economy back on track.
3: Yeah, I mean, it's a two part answer to that question, James, actually. I think, firstly, we've seen, and the construction industry more broadly has seen, in the first two or three weeks post the lockdown, uh, some mixed messages around construction. And should or shouldn't construction go ahead, we've certainly had our challenges in HS2 and have taken the opportunity to look at all our sites and see where we can make sure we can comply with sort of PHE guidance. And that's generated a mix of reactions from the public, to your point. And I think as my hope is, at least as this sort of curve of infections flattens and government feels increasingly confident of sort of letting some sense of normality restore that we'll see the work of construction, a lot of what we do in infrastructure as being a force for good, for getting that liquidity into the economy, creating jobs. Uh, creating activity, providing, of course, first and foremost, we do not do anything to compromise the health of not just our workforce, but actually the people that are impacted by that work on on adjacent, you know, in the, in the community and the like. So I think it will be a balance. I think to my, my other sort of point to your question is, you know, we are, and Highways England Network Rail, you know, we're sort of responsible for linear assets. Our work touches people that didn't ask to be next to motorways or railways or next to HS2. And we have a duty of care to make sure that we protect and look after the people that are impacted by our work. And again, this period has shone a light on how we can perhaps use technology to engage with people in some slightly different ways. Um, Some of the stuff we sort of have to do face to face. But actually what this period has shown us that that isn't essential in all cases, and again, you know, I can see some green shoots of stuff coming out of the last three or four weeks, which frankly will change the way we do some of our consultation and some of our engagement with communities along the route where those folks are impacted by our work.
0: Mark, from an ACOM perspective, I know that that's something we've seen. We've certainly changed the way that we've, we've been offering local engagement, community engagement for our clients. Some really interesting innovations that have come out of it. What has impressed you about the delivery of, of new innovation across all of our RM markets really?
1: it was interesting when Mark was talking about consultation and, and something that we've developed um, before the COVID-19 was our virtual consultation tool. It's actually been something we've developed for Highways England, particularly on A303. Um, and we are using it in a number of places now. And, and it, as Mark touched on, and it's so important that we, we have a responsibility that the communities that we cross with our projects is how do we engage with them? And with what's going on at the moment, you know, obviously the virtual requirement is, is essential for lots of reasons. But I think out of what's going on at the moment, we can use this because my my view with virtual consultation processes is that although we we traditionally have a hall where people go to or a a town hall where people visit and they go and and talk to the people working on the projects. I think what's happened over this period of time will hopefully give people more confidence to use the virtual uh, process. You know, people that have never been on Zoom before are, are on Zoom having quiz nights and virtual beers and coffees and everything else so i think you know this this period has Open the public eyes to the use of virtual tools. And like I say, we've been pushing that really hard. I think, you know, just the other one I'd mention, it, it seems very simple, but we're working with Network Rail in a number of places and we've done a number of um, workshops up to 50 people using Teams and software. And the feedback we've had, it's like a traditional workshop, you know, where you go off into little groups and little rooms and you feed back into a, a wider group. And the feedback we've had from the client has been this is better than actually doing it in a hotel. More effective, more efficient, and also they get that that immediate feedback. So, you know, there's the virtual consultation tools that we developed for obviously going to the general public. But I think we've we've found ways across the business to take the business to a different level. And you know, some of the ways we've done things in the past, I don't think are the ways we want to do them in the future anyway. And the feedback we're getting is that people are actually quite like them. So there's a mixture of things. And I think, as you always say, uh, Mark said, you know, don't waste a good crisis. And I think. Think we need to take some of these things we developed in this period and make sure we don't go back to the old ways.
0: Okay so let's look forward a little bit to so when the lockdown lifts and we start to head back to the new normal or whatever is the, the, the phrase that we're calling it at the moment. Dean how do we get to the point where we can accelerate the delivery of, of these shovel ready projects that are good to go and are going to get things back on track?
2: Yeah I think um, it's going to be really important that the government help us in that space. You know Highways England have got a number of shovel-ready schemes and, you know, the whole construct of our risk is to ensure that we've got the schemes ready on the shelf. I've personally uh, signed off over £3 billion worth of contract in the past six months. So I think we've got the schemes that are that are there ready to go. And I think to the point that we were discussing earlier about, you know, Nightingale and how that catapults it forward and, and to Mark Thurston's point around private and public interface and, and ensuring that we can um, Grease the wheels there to ensure that our supply chain don't don't feel the pain of those protracted um, approvals, etc. So I think you know the schemes are there. Um, by and large, you know we've got lots of schemes, and you know that's you know great announcement with HS2. Notice to proceed. So I think you know there's there's lots of work there in the transport sector that is ready to go for us, and we just need to ensure that decision making process is. are are expedited to match up the
0: aspiration. Something that people obviously talk a lot about and we would have discussed before the pandemic is the issue of sustainability. Is there a concern that as we rush to get our economy back on track and we look to get our shovel-ready projects going and our large infrastructure, et cetera, that we could go against some of the good work that we've done so far on a sustainable approach, uh, you know, our our plans to target net zero, et cetera?
4: James, I think it's, it's absolutely right to ask that question. As network rail, we're under requirements over the coming period that we're in to reduce our carbon dioxide emissions, for example, by 25% and other very challenging targets that we know that we've got as the UK, but also in Scotland's railway as well. So therefore, I actually think this is a key opportunity for us to ensure that we start to deliver some of the projects that are considered as being appropriate to help the long-term sustainability of the environment. Infill schemes on electrification are, are a classic example. And I think this is where we have to just hold our nerve and absolutely continue to remember that we have these challenges in the future and use this crisis, as Marx says, to start to accelerate some of those other schemes that could have huge economical benefits as well as um, delivering a great environmental outcome it would be interesting to get everyone's thoughts on this,
0: whether people's opinions on the sustainability agenda, the green agenda, have changed as they've seen the impact of of not commuting. Uh, You've seen stories globally about pollution levels dropping. Do you think that people are going to be more in tune with this now?
2: I absolutely do. I think, you know, what's shocked lots of people is how quickly things change. You know, if you you think about, you know, how quickly that uh, pollution levels have dropped off in some really majorly polluted cities around the world just by stopping people getting around for a number of weeks. It's had a huge impact and I think people are very, very surprised by how quickly those places have repaired themselves. So I absolutely believe that, you know, there'll be a bigger call to say, well, if it's that easy, although it's obviously had a a big impact on the economy, surely there's something that we can do to push forward the sustainability agenda and, and, and take those lessons... And those stark, sort of like statistics and facts, and and turn them into something that is beneficial to all of us. So, you know, I think people. We'll be asking more probing questions.
3: Yeah, James, if I can just build on Dean's point. I mean, I think what what we've seen, there was a lovely picture in the paper of folks in India who could see the Himalayas, which they'd not seen for sort of decades or something, you know, and there's a huge smog had been lifted. And the water that's around Venice has changed colour and you can suddenly see the fish that... you. As you say, all these little, little sort of stories around the world. So, yeah, I think what this has done, again, is given us a sense of what the possible can be Clearly, we've got to get the economy back on its feet. And that's, I think, a a long run. That's not going to be a quick fix. And and HS2, we are very aware of our sort of carbon credentials. We're going to use a lot of concrete to build this railway. But in the long run, it is making a significant contribution to a low carbon travel environment, knowing that, Frankly, the airlines have really been hit, haven't they? Buy this, and and to Dean's point, we've seen the impact of a drop off of car travel. So again, I, I think it's a good question how, and, and actually linking to your earlier question to me about sort of behaviour and sort of you know what habits we've got and what habits we restore versus which ones we keep from this period, and people being just a, a bit more conscious of it and. I sort of imagine that it will become a little bit more ingrained in the psyche of this country in particular, but probably around the world to your question, that it's amazing just how quickly you can make a difference to your carbon footprint if you don't use your car or you don't fly and you travel in a different way. So, again, it be interesting to see how we harness that to set a new watermark for this, uh, you know, in the sort of months and years to come.
1: James, it's Mark uh, Southwell here. I I think, you know, we've been talking about this, haven't we, internally, uh, in terms of how the mode of transport is going to change and there will still need to be the reality is that there will to get the economy going we will need to reinstate some of the transportation but I think what could change and I think we changed a lot by the social distancing that's going to come in for a period of time until we get the vaccine is how people travel on our trains I travel in from Reading to London and there's a lot of us that commute into London the way that we travelled over the last uh, period of time that's not going to be possible for a period of time so I think you're going to see a a change in how people adapt and and whether they space their time out their commuting obviously we talked about the use of technology and and better smarter equipment and i think that we're going to see out of necessity because of the pandemic i think we're going to see a, a, although we'll see things coming back it will it will never get back to where it was before i think you're going to see a change in in people's philosophy of how they're going to travel so um you know that's one of the hopefully the positives out of this that we will we'll, we'll see a reduction in the impact to the environment so it's going to really change things that's a fact
4: and mark i think your point is absolutely right and over the weekend our chairman sir peter um was talking around the impact and how this could have real challenges if you talk about intercity trains and intercity services they tend to be reservation available systems on those trains, but if you talk about metropolitan and and high-density trains, they're not. And, And it'll be very interesting how we all react to this as we start to rebuild the economy and people come back onto the railway, how do you do social distancing and maintain the economy and all those other factors. And I think that then blends into how we all use the stuff that Mark and others were talking about on technology. We're starting now to use teams to do conference calls with up to seven, eight hundred plus of our workforce and teams that we used to sometimes bring together in big forums. You can do those things now very interactively with live video feeds and all that. It's just incredible what we've learned to do over the last sort of three, four weeks. And Nick, how do you see your, your
0: stations
4: changing? I think that's James. That is that is an absolutely going to be a, a fascinating question because, as we know, many of those stations um, are extremely densely um, occupied as 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 you come into the peak periods. And if you were to talk around, how do you maintain two meter social distancing through that? That changes the whole concept of everything that you do in a station and 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 how you do station management, how you load trains, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So I think those are all the things that, as we understand more about the virus and what the long term impact will be on us all is how we then learn to if- to learn to react quickly and fast and that's where we have learnt a lot i can give you an example that normal timetable changes take years and months we went from our standard timetable that we were running literally over Eight to twelve days, we inputted the timetable we've been running now, which is wow. roughly fifty percent of the national service, and that was put in in ten days. Now that that's the sort of agility that we've got to learn, and that's about how you match then you match demand with 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 supply, and we've got to learn how to do that. And it's going to have to
0: be a really, Mark, back from, and I'm talking to you for sort of ACOM, across everything that we do, it's going to really be a big collaborative approach, because I think someone mentioned earlier, the total system, it's not just looking at transport in isolation, it's looking at how cities, how towns, how everything is going to change.
1: Yeah, you know, it, it's actually when you start just thinking about all of this, and I said this, funny enough, to my team meeting today the actual entering into this lockdown, although it might have been traumatic in, in a number of ways, how we exit is going to be a real, real challenge for all of, all of us. You know, it doesn't matter where we sit in, in, in this world, you know, how we adapt to the the events and and it does the whole thing we do we take for granted and in some respects i'll be a bit challenging here just sitting at home is not that difficult (laughs) Um, but actually getting back into a a a way of operating and and meeting people and and some social interaction is is going to be really really difficult and i think it'll be an interesting experience which i think we're all going to learn from and we're all going to find our way and you know just building on that this podcast but having conversations and I, I speak to competitors but colleagues in other organisations and I think what we're doing is we're all learning from each other and, and one of the positive things is that although we may be competitors in in, in our market people are always share are confident to share what they're doing and I think this is one of the positives that's come out of this that people are are open and, and are, are saying look this is what we're doing take it or leave it but we want to help you so I think we, we're going to have a period of some period of time until we get the vaccine that, that we're we're all going to have to pull together and, and find a way of working from the transportation sector but all the other sectors it's going to need a lot of bringing together and I think that's going to be may I say the biggest challenge to come
0: and surely we're going to need a lot of people to help deliver this a lot of skills which brings me on to the skills gap mark from a HS2 perspective where do you think we are on the on the skills gap and what has this pandemic lockdown done to contribute to solving or, or, or making the problem worse
3: I'm not sure I've got an answer to the second part of your question, James. Yeah, I, we've been talking about skills in our sector for as long as I can remember, actually. And there's a lot of good work going on across, I guess, sort of engineering, construction, infrastructure, a sort of broad family, certainly a lot of work being led by uh, the DFT with their transport efficient strategy. That us and network around housing laws that contribute to the strategic task force for apprenticeships. The work of ENSAR, uh, the National Skills Academy for Rail, as a case in point. So I think there's lots of good stuff going on. And frankly, we've just had the sort of first sift for our next cohort of apprentices that would join us in the autumn. Again, just some data to sort of put some colour into your answer to your question. Uh, we, I think we, we're going to hire probably about 25, which is similar to last year. We had over 1,200 applications. So there is no shortage of people want to come into that sector, which I think is very encouraging. And... It may be that the ways of working in this current climate uh, and to your earlier question around sort of behaviour and the fact that companies are going to have to make or will want to make and employees will want to make different social work choices around how they work, how they travel, how they deal with things like childcare, looking after loved ones. Yeah, I think all these things, you know, and I think Mark South will sort of articulate a few of them a moment ago, all these will come into play. And I think the fact that we're all going to have to adapt potentially makes us a more appealing sector, where perhaps thus far we've maybe not seen as quite as attractive to... So many people sort of leaving school or university or college to come to infrastructure. So, again, for me, it's an opportunity for us. I don't see our situation in skills made any worse by this. I think, if anything, if we're smart and we think about what the opportunity is, it makes us uh, more. You would become more digitally enabled. All of, you know, I've got two daughters in their early 20s, they are super digitally enabled. I mean, they don't remember life without an iPad, um, frankly, and we all can all relate to that, those of us who have got kids. So I think the fact that we as businesses have all become much more digitally enabled and that will naturally flow through into our businesses as the pandemic passes, I think potentially makes us as a sector more appealing for people coming into it.
0: We've talked about innovation, we've talked about skills, we've talked about communicating the benefits of of investing in infrastructure uh, as part of this recovery. I suppose literally the million dollar question is how do we pay for it all? And is the money that's being pipelined already enough? What should the government be doing and how are we going to fund all of these solutions to getting the economy back on track?
1: Well, James, it's sort of you know in my opening, uh, your opening question to me, we we talked about how can investment uh, help economies recover, and I, I gave you a number of statistics, and it is it is known. So I believe that if the government commit to the projects that they've already proposed, I think that will for our infrastructure uh, sector will will be a, a great position to be. Uh, yes, it'd be great to have some more projects, but the reality is that the numbers that we're talking about with HS2, Network Rail, and was England, just naming those three infrastructure uh, transportation sectors alone, if the investment is there. I think the real important thing from a supplier's point of view is getting that investment into the market now. As soon as possible. You know, I've been in the industry for a number of years, and we've seen the cycles of investment. And I I think the three guests here will will recognise that we need to get that investment into the supply chain as soon as possible. And that will help. I think that's my if I'm being very candid about it, then my biggest concern is that we don't get that investment. There may be a, a slight lag, and that's the, the risk, I think, for the industry. That's my perspective. Talking to colleagues, competitors, they have a similar view. So but I think that you know, you're know, answering your question. I think there is the budget there identified. We need to get it into the supply chain and get that working through the economy. And I think the sooner we do that, the better. That's my, my view of uh, where we are today.
3: James, if I may, it's Mark. I think the other thing, so that that, that sort of pace and speed, uh, you know, as a client, we get that, and Nick and Dean will have you know similar challenges. How do we sort of drive that liquidity in the sort of short term because it's going to be the lifeblood that keeps our industry alive frankly and you yeah. know the balance sheets of these organisations I think more particularly contractors but as well as consultants won't stand up for too long if this stuff sort of gets stuck in the system again I think the opportunity for us looking slightly longer term is and this is more a sort of a general point not a specific HS2 one as such but again like Mark someone who's sort of been around the industry uh, a few years the appetite for private money there's no shortage of money or hasn't been on investment in projects there's been different versions of public and private enterprise coming together, and uh, the reality is there is only so much money the government can afford. They've clearly put a huge amount of money into the economy to keep it alive through this period, and we're some way from being out the other side of that yet. So I do think as we do start to emerge from the impact of the pandemic in the second half of the year... Um, And into next year and beyond, it will be, I think, just interesting to see. And frankly, I think it's an obligation on us all to much harder how we can bring public and private partnership together, because we I don't think it would be we can rely on an ongoing pipeline of government investment, because frankly, you know, the government debt on the back of this is going to be profound. And it will want to invest in other parts of its responsibilities. And clearly, the, you know, investment in the health services has come under significant spotlight through the last few weeks. So I think those of us in the sort of infrastructure community have all got an obligation to find ways of funding projects, recognizing they're good for the economy, as we've discussed. But we shouldn't rely on the government's checkbook I think indefinitely
1: I totally agree with you Mark and my challenge there is that this has been looked at for quite some time and I think everyone's got to look at this in a very new way and, and with all the challenges we're facing because I think the private sector will come with ideas and I think we've gone through um, a number of private public partnership situations in this country over the years and not, not all of them have been successful and previous governments have sort of got a bit nervous about it but I agree with you I think we're in a different uh, place now. So I I I think that's something that I know from an ACON point of view that we're very keen to explore. But I think the the supply chain is. But we need to find a way of uncapping that process that that seems to get locked every so often.
0: Thank you, everybody. It's clearly a subject that we could talk about for hours. But we are going to have to leave it there, I'm afraid. Just remains for me to say a big thank you to my guests today, Mark Thurston, Dean Spawn, Nick King, and Mark Southwell. If you've enjoyed this podcast, then please subscribe, leave a review, and of course, tell your friends all about it. I'll be back soon with the next episode of Talking Infrastructure. Until then, take care and goodbye.